see what's happening. Okay. <laughs> so, folks, we are in Psalm. What Psalm are we in? Do you know? Yeah, way to go. Psalm 10. So take a gander at it. There's 18 verses. And we'll talk through it. It's good. Really good. You're sitting with your in-laws, Laura. Well, you've got to be good. Okay. <clears throat> Psalm 10. Hey, would you look at the first verse? Tell me what word is repeated two times. Why is right. Folks, do you know that question is uh, common to humankind? The why question. Usually we ask it of God when we're in trouble. It's normal. Things aren't going well. There's a measure of pain in our lives. We cry out to God. Even the most non-religious of us will cry out the why question. It's okay to do that, but it's illogical to do it. Because it presumes a God could give an explanation that we could understand. But we can't. He's bigger. He has a perspective on eternity we do not. We are bound into time. Today is Sunday. Tomorrow, if we make it, will be Monday. But God exists outside of time. And as a result, he doesn't mind allowing things to come our way that are of eternal benefit, even if they hurt a little bit here and now. So we think if we cried out long enough to God to give us an explanation, it would make sense. But he can't squeeze his wisdom into our puny little brains. You can relate to this if you have kids. You've told them, no, you can't eat that before dinner. And they say, why? Well, you don't take time to explain principles of nutrition. You pretty much say, what do you say? Because I said so. The whole room is filled with mean people. Of course you say that. Now, I'll tell you what's behind that. You are wanting them to accept who you are, not just that you're the authority figure, but you love them. And if you even say no to them, it's in their best interest. And you are helping that their confidence in you will grow over time. And that's how God does us, if you will. I don't understand all his ways. I don't understand when he denies me something I really want. I don't understand it when he seems far off. And he's not going to explain all that because I, I can't get it. But he's helping me day by day to see he's trustworthy, even when I don't understand his ways. So the psalmist, by the way, what's the name of the psalmist who wrote Psalm 10? I knew you would say David. And thanks, it was a trick question. And I wanted to ask it to make you feel bad. Because that's the goal of coming to church, you know. Uh, actually, we do not know who wrote this one. <laughs> it's anonymous. Remember, out of the 150 Psalms, David wrote a lot of them, but not all of them. And so in this case, we don't know who, who actually wrote it. But we know the guy who wrote it is upset. Why is he upset according to verse 1? Do you think God is literally afar off? No, sir. Yeah, but he just felt it emotionally. Yes, you have, haven't you? You know in your head that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. So it's not possible for him to be afar off. But the language of emotion sometimes cries out that he are. So this is not a theological statement made by the psalmist. He doesn't mean to be 
being precise theologically. Neither do you when you're hurting and you cry out to God. But I have to tell you, it's okay. It's the language of emotion. Once again, haven't your kids ever done that? Have you ever had, don't raise your hand, one of your kids when they were real, real, real little say, I hate you? I remember this happened to me when one of our sons was just a little guy. They don't do that anymore. Um, we don't let them. But anyway, I remember, and I don't remember what it was that was going on, but I said to one of our little boogers, uh, you can't have that, whatever the that was. And I remember him saying, I hate you, Dad. And I remember thinking, I'm probably not going to kill him yet. Because <laughs> I was thinking, I need him to grow up and be my retirement plan. <laughs> so I didn't kill him. Um, to be honest with you, I didn't even rebuke him because I knew he didn't mean it. I just knew he's ignorant, doesn't know what he's talking about. And, and he didn't mean it as a, uh, to be taken seriously. It was the language of emotion. Don't you see? We have God-given emotions too. And you grow to maturity and you stop saying stuff like that. So the psalmist, I think, knows in his head God is not afar off. He just has that sense. And you and I have had that too. We're in trouble. We want relief. God doesn't seem to be coming through. And so we say, where are you? It's not theology, it's the language of a hurt heart. And so the psalmist goes on, verse 2. Here's his problem. In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. It's not a personal issue. Nobody was not nice to him. Nobody was unkind. Nobody left him out. There wasn't anybody that didn't meet his needs. It's more global. He's upset about life. There's a bunch of wicked people, and they're giving the afflicted a hard time. He's upset about a real-world condition. We can relate to that. It appears that wicked people have influence over vulnerable people, afflicted people. So that's what he's saying. God, what's up with that? Why don't you intervene and do something about it? He said, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Then verse 3, for the wicked boasts of his heart desire. Look. The wicked person is characterized by this. There's something on his heart. He desires it. He doesn't care whether it complies with God's will at all. He's not asking the question, does this desire please you? If he has it, that's all that matters, and he boasts of it. He doesn't care whether, whether it squares with God's principles of morals and ethics. If he feels it, he's going to do it. If it feels good, do it. So that's the attitude of this person. And the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. You don't literally have to do that for you to be doing that. It's not so much that he verbalizes this spurning and cursing at God, but his lifestyle reflects it. He's diminishing the role of God, and in so doing, he's spurning his very presence. So it goes on to describe him more, verse 4. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance doesn't seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. Um, so let me ask you a question. A person who says there is no God, what is that person called? An idiot. Well, no, uh, well, you see now Brother Charles says an idiot because <laughs> uh, I should have known better. I should never have asked that question. But <laughs> an atheist, an atheist, somebody said. So 
I want to tell you something. An atheist is a little, if you don't mind, a little more for the tape, you know. Okay, that's good. So, but I have to tell you something about an atheist. They're hard to find. I really mean it. I know they're out there, but statistically, they're a little hard to find. A true, committed, passionate atheist. Generally, what you have are practical atheists, meaning there are folks who say, yes, I believe in God. But in practice, they act like they don't. There's a lot of them. That's what we're reading about here. This is a person who is in his lifestyle betrays his belief that there is no God. There's a lot of practical atheists. Look, every time somebody does a poll of Americans, uh, upwards of 70% say they're Christians. I don't think so. Well, I don't think we'd be in the mess we is if that was true. Exactly. So that can't be right. What are they essentially saying? Yeah, I believe in God. Sure, everyone, I mean, everyone in Hollywood believes in God. Madonna believes in God. You can state that and yet be a practical atheist. So that's what's kind of happening. So this isn't exactly a person who's coming right out and publicizing his belief, I don't believe in God, there is no God. This is a person saying, I believe in God, but I, I'm kind of acting like I'm he. I don't want to know about the true God who is to be enthroned on my heart. I want to do my own thing. That's a practical, uh, uh, that's someone who's an atheist in practice. So that's what the psalmist is upset about. He says there's a lot of those who are in positions of leadership in his world. Ours too, by the way. So verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. Now don't you see, this is what the psalmist is troubled by. You know what this means? Bad people have good things. But good people run into bad things. And so the psalmist cannot square this with the goodness of God. That's why emotionally he's crying out to God, what's up? Why do you stand afar off as if you don't care? His ways, the ways of the wicked, prosper, which tells me um, there can be prosperity without morality. Right. See, today people will tell you prosperity is a sign of the favor of God. And it might be, but it need not be. There's a lot of prosperous people today who are as immoral as the day is long. It's quite interesting how many wicked people have plenty of money. So the psalmist doesn't put the two together, you see. In fact, he says, your judgments are on high. For the person, this wicked person, it's as if God's judgments, if there are any, are far removed from him. They're on high. They're not going to touch him. They're out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. Uh, verse 6, he says to himself, I'm not going to be moved. Throughout all generations, I won't be in adversity. <laughs> Folks, this person is absolutely secure in his self-centeredness. This is a person absolutely secure in his self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and self-dependence. Could I tell you something? Um, if, you, if you are feeling too secure about your present circumstances, you are not safe. 
because your present circumstances in any day can change in an instant, can't they? Right, that's right. You could be laid off. There can be a worldwide economic collapse. There can be 9-11. You could get a rough medical diagnosis. A loved right. one's life could be cut short. I don't want to ruin your day. I just want to tell you, if you're unduly secure in your circumstances, you're not safe. See, if you're unduly secure in your circumstances, you think you're in control. No, you're not. You're not even control, uh, in control of the next breath you take. That's right. You don't even know if you're going to make it safely home when we dismiss. Right. Are you encouraged? <laughs> no, I just want to tell you this thing of... The, that's why the Bible says put no confidence in the flesh. That's right. You see? You see? So this person says, everything's cool. I'm just going to go on doing it. I cannot be moved. Verse 7, his, look at verse 7. How many uh, body parts <laughs> are mentioned in verse 7? Yeah, two. What are they? You got the tongue and the mouth. So here's what's happening. This guy's mouth is full of curses. Those are verbalized statements. They come from his mouth, but that's not the full extent of how bad he is because under his tongue is a whole lot more wickedness. So what comes out of his mouth is what he says, but what's under his tongue and hasn't been said yet is what he believes. So for instance, you have this guy, I'll just use an example, there are many. The, the president of Iran, with a hard name to pronounce, I think it's Ahmadinejad. Really, you've been practicing? Yeah. Well, whatever the guy, um, he says outlandish things. But if those outlandish things are coming out of his mouth, can you imagine how much more is under his tongue? Right. You see, do you see what's in view of, of, over here? Verse 8, he sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the hiding places. He kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. Uh, the image is of someone hiding along the roadway, ready to prance on an unsuspecting traveler, a vulnerable traveler. We see this in human history. Dictators usually come to power in a nation where the people are very unfortunate, maybe economically distressed, right. hungry for a solution, and someone rises to the scene making promises sure. to be the solution. Boy, is this far-fetched, huh? And, uh, and so people cast caution to the wind and support this person in occupying the office only to find out oftentimes thereafter he doesn't have his best interest at heart he's dictatorial and so this has happened and you remember Mussolini or Hitler or Idi Amin who used to be in Uganda or Stalin they all rose to power when people were impoverished and needy and so on. And so it's just like this one, don't you see? He hides, he waits for the opportunity uh, so as to prance upon the unfortunate. 
Verse 9, he lurks in a hiding place. Look, as a lion in his lair, he lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. Hey, listen, uh, those of you who are Christians, we're going down the road of life until the Lord takes us home, you know? <clears throat> and um, these kinds of people are like highway robbers along the, the road of life, wanting to rob us of uh, biblical accuracy, of spiritual conviction, of devotion to the Lord, all the rest. Uh, therefore, the Christian traveler along the road of life has to go armed. Don't go unarmed. Because there are, there are ones seeking to pluck us off, you know. Right. Which reminds me of this. Uh, I've said this before kind of facetiously, but there's an element of truth to it. We do not have to like each other. But we still need each other. Amen. If we happen to like each other, that's icing on the cake. But the purpose of coming to church is not because I like all those people. No way. There's a bunch of people. I, no. Okay, I'm sorry, Charlie. Uh, but, but, so why do we come? We come together because um, the core value of this group can sustain us. What's the core value? Uh, Jesus is the way to salvation and there is no other. The Bible is God's word. It's not just really mit written by men. It doesn't contain truth. It are truth. Amen. There's only two kinds of people in the world, those who have the Son and those who do not, and so on and so forth. These are the things, that those are the core values. And so let's say you're departing from those because there's this highway robber sort of stealing your inheritance. So then you need to come back because it's an accountability group and you get influenced by the core value of the larger group. So you see why the local church is so very, very important. Right. Well, anyway, verse 10, this character crouches, he bows down and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. Verse 11, he says to himself, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face, he'll never see it. So I'll tell you what this guy's doing. <clears throat> He's minimizing the omniscience of God. What does omniscience mean? All knowledge. All knowledge. God knows everything. This guy thinks God can forget something, uh -uh. namely me. But he doesn't realize that it's not possible to forget because God is all-knowing. So here's a guy with a very deficient understanding of who the Creator is. <laughs> He actually is fooling himself into thinking what I do in the dark is not seen by God. Could I give you two words that can help to keep you in check? It's just two words. When you're on the verge of kind of doing something wrong, if you could just remember these two words, God sees. There's no such thing as a secret sin if there is an omniscient God. But this character thinks there is. So here's what the psalmist says in verse 12. Arise, O Lord. <clears throat> O oh God, lift up your hand, do not forget the afflicted. Do you know something? The psalmist, in this case, is as inaccurate as the oppressor in the prior verse. Because the psalmist actually thinks it's possible for God to forget the afflicted too. He too is confused about the omniscience of God. Is it possible for God to forget the afflicted? 
listen, he neither forgets the oppressor or the oppressed. Listen, if you're a child of the king, one of his kids, <clears throat> doesn't make sense to you that God would have paid the ultimate price for you, namely his only begotten son, dead on a cross, impaled on a cross, would God have offered that only to abandon you in the desert? Let's be logical. Now, I understand when we're hurting the language of emotion says all manner of things, but from a theologically accurate point of view, it's not possible for God to uh, forget the afflicted. Again, this is the language of emotion. Verse 13, why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you won't require it. It's interesting. The wicked person doesn't ever believe that his sin will meet up with God's judgment. <clears throat> he has persuaded himself that a loving God is going to let him go. How could a holy God not judge sin? Please tell me. And still remain holy. But this guy's acting as if his sin will not meet up with judgment. Verse 14, the psalmist says, you've seen it. You've beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. <clears throat> the unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. What tense, past, present, or future is the psalmist expressing that in? It's past tense. Now notice what's happening to this character. He starts out in verse 1 really troubled and in distress and stuff is spewing forth from his mouth. It's the language of emotion, and he's saying things that is, aren't really true of God. But as he moves through the process of praying, he's helping himself. He's remembering who he's talking to, and he's remembering God's track record. So he remembers what God has done in the past. You have been the helper of the orphan. Now here's what he's going to come to this conclusion. If God has been, then God will be. Why? Because God does not change. You do, I do, but he doesn't. If God has been the helper of the vulnerable and needy, then God will be. And can you see the psalmist now is coming to grips with this harsh reality of wicked people leading and prospering, but he's saying, but wait, I don't have to plead with God to be anyone other than who he already are. He's intervened before on behalf of the oppressed and he shall again. Yeah. Verse 15, look what he says, break the arm of the wicked. You know, when I read that, it reminded me of <clears throat> my time when I grew up in New York, where we used to have characters like Cousin Vito. <clears throat> These are guys who carry around a violin case, but there wasn't a violin in there. <clears throat> Cousin Vito would break people's arms. So when I read this, I'm kind of thinking, <clears throat> is the psalmist asking God to just break this guy's arm? No. Uh, in the Hebrew in which this was written, it actually means destroy his power. The arm is a symbol of power. So when he cries out to God, he is saying, take away the sinner's power to sin. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. He's simply praying, oh God, so deal with the situation that one day you won't even see a semblance of sin 
intervened to do that. That's what he's saying. Now, verse 16, notice this. The Lord, he's saying this, the same guy who was started out in verse 1. Look what he's saying. The Lord is king. For how long? Yeah, forever and ever. It's like he's reminding himself, these worldly, earthly, wicked kings, yeah, but they're not the king forever and ever. Nations, he says, have perished. Hey, so have you run into a Philistine lately? Oh, you See, I was here last night at the Christmas festival, and I was just interacting with as many people. As I didn't run into one Philistine. What happened to the Philistines? Mighty, I'm just using it as an example. Nations have perished from his land. The psalmist is reminding himself, hey, hey, hey. The Lord is the king forever and ever. He can and will deal. Let me ask you this question. Can you think? I had a hard time doing this. There might be one. But I couldn't come up with an evil dictator who died comfortably in his bed. Where'd they find Saddam Hussein? A hole in the ground. Where'd they find Adolf Hitler? Dead. In a hole in the ground. Committed suicide or whatever. Do you know how Mussolini died? A crazed crowd. They hung him out there and all this. Upside down, didn't he? <clears throat> on and on and on. Oh, yeah. The Lord who is king forever will break the arm of the wicked. And can you see the growing confidence in the character of God on the part of the psalmist? What you're reading about in verse 16 is not the way he started stuff in verse 1. In verse 1, oh God, what's happening? Where are you? Why are you afar off? Don't you see? Don't you care? Why don't you do something? Verse 16, whoa, you've taken care of the nations. You're the Lord. You're the king forever and ever. Verse 17, oh Lord. You've heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Look, you have, you will. <laughs> because God is immutable. He He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. You have, you will. So now he comes up with a few you wills. His confidence has grown. Explain to me, how does a guy move from his emotional state of affairs as depicted in verse 1 to this sheer and utter confidence in the sovereignty of God at the end of the psalm? Can you please tell me what intervened? What did he do? He prayed. I was reading this and thinking, boy, I wonder how much is really accomplished without praying about it. He pray it's not just praying. You know why you have national days of prayer? You'll forgive me, but I'm not too excited about that. That's right. That means every goofy clergy in the world wears all kinds of crazy outfits and pray to all manner of goofball gods. There's nothing magical about prayer. The issue is, who are you directing the prayer to? In this case, the psalmist is directing his prayer to the Lord, who is the king forever and ever. So today you have people, oh, I just pray. Who are you praying to? The black hole out there? Mars? Who are you praying? 
I mean, look, I got to tell you, if you're praying to Allah, nobody's hearing you. That's right. If you're praying to Buddha, you're praying to a dead man. If you're praying to the Father through the Son, <laughs> your prayers are heard. And you're praying to someone who not only hears, he's able. How do you know God is willing and able to get you out of a jam? He has. If you're sitting in this room today, you're forced to come to this conclusion. Here it is. Thus far, the Lord has been my help. I mean, you're, you're, you look reasonably well, most of you. And there may be severe difficulties which some are experiencing. I don't mean to minimize those. My point is, there have been severe difficulties in your life before, but somehow you're here kind of clothed and in your right mind, and most. In, I'll tell you how you explain it. As God has been in the past, so he will be. It's inconsistent to think that you'll be abandoned. You can feel that, and I do too at sometimes. I don't want to uh, preach down in anybody, but don't you see that's the language of emotion. You really know as you work through a prayer like this, when you, when you clear out the emotion by expressing it to God, then you can have a clear view of who you're talking to. And when you get a clear view of who you're talking to, then you can do this. You take a deep breath. You say, I'm okay now because I'm in good hands. And if I'm distressed by the stuff in the world, how much more is a holy God distressed by? How much more will he deal with it? Charlie? Uh, there is a guy that wrote a, a book called Crying Out to God, a friend of Brother John's. He's on their board. It's Bill of the Basic Youth Conflict. What's his last name? I can't remember that. Gothard. Bill Gothard. Oh, yeah. Um, and he says, cry out to God. And I tell you what, I'm not embarrassed to cry out to him whenever I'm in a hole or in difficulties. And he'll always lead you out if you know his dear son. Yes. And your question about there are no Philistines around today, there yes. are plenty of Philistines around today. Oh, I see. They're, they're known as Palestinians. Uh. And they've always been around the area, and they're descendants of the Palestinian, of the Philistinians, and they're there. But God says, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee if you know the Lord Jesus. So we have a real joy in that. Yes, we do. Uh, well said, most of it. And, uh, <laughs> so. But we could always delete this and record the next class. <laughs> Thank you, Charlie, and you're right. And there's a difference, isn't there, sometimes between praying to God and crying out. This guy's not praying. You know, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. No, no, no. This guy is crying out to the Lord. Who else is he going to cry? Do you know, tell me if you can accept this. Do you know complaining is a legitimate form of prayer? Who are you going to complain to? We don't have any answers to ultimate questions. Our Father can take the heat. He's pretty thick-skinned. He knows we don't know what we're talking about. He's glad we're complaining to him. It's okay. I didn't say be disrespectful. 
But the why question and the how long question and the Lord, I don't get it. Why are bad people having a good time? And why are good people having a bad time? What is going on? Why are you allowing this to happen? See, those are complaints. And God doesn't say, sit down and let me defend myself. He shakes his head lovingly and he smiles and he just says, that's why I call you a little child. Because you don't know. Folks, there is nothing God al allows or does that isn't for two purposes, his glory and the good of his people. Amen. It's just that we won't see all that until we get to the other side. So what does God require of us right now? Believe, based on his track record, that he's in control and that he's good. That's the task for us Christians today. Isn't that a good psalm? Man, oh man, oh man. Well, Lord willing, next week we'll do Psalm 11. Then we take a little break from Bible study for a few Sundays because of the holiday schedule that we have. But Lord willing, next week, Psalm 11. And if you'd like, you could read ahead. It's actually allowed. <laughs> so uh, let me just pray. And then don't go right away because I just want to uh, repeat another announcement. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, Look who we're talking to, because though you were crucified, buried, you rose from the dead. So we're speaking to you, alive and seated at the right hand of the Father. Thank you for being the mediator and bridge between us and holy God. How else could we have accessed him except you, the perfect God-man, would make a way for us to do so? We do apologize to you for thinking we know best. We don't. Father knows best. You're our heavenly Father. And because you're heavenly, you have an unbelievably clear view of what's going on down here. And there'll be a day when you make all things new. Until then, I think you're giving us a chance to have our dependence on you enhanced. And that's not so bad because we have to be emptied of self and filled up with your spirit. So thank you for using all things for the good to those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Folks, just give me a chance to turn this off.